Hello and welcome to the Clustering Insights podcast. I'm your host, Chris Walters, and I'm delighted to be joined by Hugo Villanueva, who is a VC investor at Octopus Ventures. How are you, Hugo? Very well, thank you. Good. Well, thanks very much for joining. Those of you who haven't met Hugo, either in person or seen his LinkedIn account, I'd encourage you to go and check out his moustache. It is way more impressive in the, in person. Um, and I've known Hugo for a while. We've enjoyed numerous conversations over the past several years, just talking about what's happening in the life sciences market. So delighted to, to have you on board for the podcast today. Just to kick us off, it would be great if you could give us a bit of an introduction to yourself um, and also in terms of who Octopus Ventures are and we can go from there. Yeah, no, happy to. And uh, yeah, delighted to be here. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Always, always a pleasure, Chris. I've been a year at Octopus Ventures and my role now consists mostly of sourcing new companies, leading on the, some of the deals that we have, taking them all the way from my taking, you know, issuing the term sheet, doing the due diligence on those, and then taking observer role seats on, uh, on those ones and potentially at some point a director uh, board seat. And um and, and that continues on the theme of what I'd like to do is either enable entrepreneurs to commercialize the idea and even the kind of entrepreneurs that come to us where we may not invest. I try to, you know, make connections with people who they might want and some portfolio companies that aren't in our portfolio, I, I help them, you know, I link them up with people like yourselves when they're telling me I'm looking for some lab space somewhere, et cetera. Octopus Ventures itself within the Octopus Group portfolio, we've got 2 billion under management at this point. Um, we look broadly at six verticals. So we look at consumers, uh, consumer fintech, deep tech, uh, software slash B2B SaaS, um, and uh, health. And now the latest addition to that is the bio one, which is where I sit on. Um, we will invest, so from the fund that I sit in, because we've got several funds actually, from the fund that I sit in, we will invest one to 10 million, up to 20 million in the lifetime of a company. And that means that, broadly speaking, the fund that I'm working with in the Octopus Ventures team um, will do deals from seeds all the way to Series B, so we could be called the multi-stage investor. But we, in that fund, the specific one, the Titan VCT, is a, a venture capital trust, which enables us to be evergreen um, because every year we've got new capital being raised, putting inside, put inside that fund, and that really allows us to take long views on things. So we then are able to fund companies that you know put satellite in space but also uh, have really cool are able to play in biotech which isn't necessarily the case for some investors that are raising through traditional lp where they have to either f put a company to to exit a little too early sometimes just to make the returns of one fund look better so they can raise the next fund right and then maybe lastly i'll just mention that we've recently ha opened the first check fund which does 100k tickets and this one invests more from a traditional LP base, but it also enables us to play in the pre-seed uh, sector. But there's a lot of things about Octopus Ventures, a lot of different uh, areas that we actually can invest in. As part of the research before this podcast, I picked up on a quote from your colleague Asmar about the importance of having experience and understanding the challenges and requirements of, of biofocused ventures. I mean, how how critical has it been for you having had the the previous experience that you've had that now when you're sitting on the on the vc side actually getting under the skin of these companies do you feel as if you sort of have 
understand their pain and their journey in terms of what they've been through and you feel like you can really get under the skin of who they are and what the opportunity is much better than perhaps you would have done if you'd gone straight into that type of role. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's actually, that's a very good point, actually. In some ways, I think, yes. So in the US, a lot of it, you'll see a lot of VCs will be ex-operators, which I think in the UK, we don't do that enough. Um, and so for me, you know, the experience that I've had in Stephen Speisheim's Catalyst and also working with other uh, startups myself has given me a certain appreciation on, you know, and empathy also, I guess, uh, from, from the entrepreneur side. Uh, so yes, it also, the, the role at Stephen has opened up a lot of doors in terms of pharma connections because the park is situated in, with GSK, right? And with a lot of, uh, now publicly listed cell and gene therapy companies. Uh, so I've got that access where I can still tap into some of the people sometimes and going and, and as a sounding board, but also appreciate, I guess, uh, some of the finer details around drug discovery, which some people have, rather than actually being there with the startup and seeing how they've taken it through, uh, have appreciated that mainly through university. So there is that. There's also a lot of stats showing that actual ex-operators don't outperform people who've purely been all their time in VC. So there are pros and cons, arguments for both, but fundamentally speaking, I think, Octopus does a really good job at picking people from different backgrounds with different experiences that complement each other. And you'll see that from the biopods. The biopod where I'm sitting in was started by Uzma, um, who you know, did her PhD in biophysics and worked, f because she was also passionate about this, on the side during her PhD was working at the tech transfer office in Manchester. Also set up one of our offices in, in Manchester, uh, looking at the really cool innovations that are coming out of the north. And she, you know, she started in deep tech for two years, then managed to build out the whole biopod really thesis within Octopus before recruiting me a, a year ago and then Oliver Sims recently. So she's got a tremendous portfolio. Seems like a great team. And you, you mentioned that there's um, sort of broadly six different areas which you will invest in under Octopus Ventures. Under your fund or the funds that you manage that are focused on the biotech side, are you, is there a particular part of the industry that you're focusing on in terms of areas that you might think have got you know more promising signs of growth in the near to near to medium term than others yes <laughs> whether you want to say that on the podcast is a different it's a different question i suppose no no absolutely i think fundamentally speaking i mean you know again taking the fact that octopus is a is a generalist fund at heart but with highly specialized ponds so what we've decided to look at is the thesis within our pod really is looking at tech bio, biotech, but biotech platforms more than anything, because realistically, we'll still come in and probably from seed to series A is probably where we our sweet spot really lies. Yeah. And then we'll look at also life science tools. Uh, we define that as, you know, for example, Illuminas of the world, the next Illumina, I guess, uh, what will revolutionize, for example, the field of proteomics, where we've used mass spec since the 1970s. There are new tools coming up, which makes it really interesting. And then we'll also look a little bit around climate tech ourselves. So there are climate tech startups like uh, CO2 capturing microbes that turn that into uh, interesting kind of materials or or products. And then lastly, we will look at synthetic biology or what's called now, I guess, engineering biology, but that has an overlap with 
industrial biology and an overlap with some of the climate tech stuff. So I think all these things nowadays, there's a lot of overlaps. And when we say platform biotechs, you could argue that most of them use big data AI nowadays and would be tech bio. And I'm sure we can always get into a discussion. Yeah, let's let's certainly get, let's talk about the tech bio piece now, because uh, you mentioned it earlier. And I think you're right. It's been noticeable from my perspective, looking at the market in terms of commentary, how different stakeholders are looking at the sector, the tech bio is a as a phrase, as a reference point, is certainly rising up the agenda. You know, how are you finding the recent advancements in technology, particularly around big data, AI? How is it impacting the type of companies that you're seeing being born and, and grown in this sector? Is it completely changing the landscape? And or has is that been happening recently because that's aligned to what's been happening in terms of the PR coverage, or has this been happening for a while and now it's just got a stronger brand? Tech bio is definitely a brand. That is my, but that is my personal opinion. I think it is a marketing play in some ways before, between VCs. I mean, I think that the word tech bio actually came up from artist ventures in the US who have thing on their website, right? That they coined that term. So tech bio is, it's the natural evolution of, of a lot of the platform biotechs and how we do biotech nowadays. We've generated a lot of data. We, we've got all these tools now, life science tools that generate all this data. And you have to make sense of them. But at the same time, you have to make sense of them in a way there is systematic, automated, and you also want to have a sort of quality control aspect. So in the, the I guess, underlying uh, the downstream, basically you need to find where something has gone wrong. And so all these different things, for example, something has gone wrong, People will say, oh, blockchain is a bit, bit of a buzzword back in the days. But you see a lot of companies actually now use blockchain. They just don't call it blockchain and don't say it on their deck because it's got a certain stigma attached potentially as to not being taken seriously. I don't know. But it's a very cool technology, for example, that enables you from a quality control aspect to know where it went wrong. AI, um, using computer vision, using all these other things. Like we've always had these things to a certain extent. We can now have tools that also make it accessible to a wider uh, view of, uh, of, of people, because back in the days, you still needed to know a lot of coding to be able to use the forms. Now you've got no codes. Now you could question whether the, whether you should, I think you should still have somebody who actually knows how to, how it works in the back end on those things uh, in your company. But yeah, and, and when I say it's a natural evolution, it's, it's just simply the way technology goes. You, you'll see that said, and, and this is maybe something that I have with tech bio as the term is, I, I, there's another argument to be made where it's made it less scary for journalists and tech VCs to get into biotech because you then, tech bio does focus a lot on drug discovery. They do go, they do claim that there is, and it's true, I mean, you, you do have multiple shots on goal, uh, but maybe something that a lot of generalists and, and tech VCs don't necessarily appreciate is that there will still be a clinical risk. There will still be a clinical trial. And, and you can, I'm sure you can read the news on some of the companies, darlings of, of TechBio, who you know, have actually had to lay off a few people, et cetera. And, and that just happens. It's You can't undo the clinical risk on those things because at some point, those shots on goal, you'll have to take, you'll have to make a decision, take a few of them far enough to then attract more investments from 
bigger growth uh, investors or life science VCs will be like, here's 40 million for your phase two. But to attract that, you need to have pushed those assets far enough. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. It's good to get your take on it. Perhaps pivoting back to, we were sort of about to explore how Octopus Ventures looks at new business opportunities. So we touched on the fact that it, I think it's great to hear about your experience and how that's helped you personally and the skill set of the team, et cetera. But when you're looking at putting a new investment into a, a new business for the first time, what are the key attributes that you're looking for? Now, I'm sure you'll, you'll probably say there's probably a wide range of them, but is it is it the technology itself that's winning the race in terms of the top criteria? Is it the people? Is it the business plan? What are the things that you're really trying to understand before you're committing to a new opportunity? Well, uh, we look for the outliers, which uh, is actually... And actually, every I think I think most VCs will say this. To be honest, so it is, it is not easy to have a framework. And and you know, if you are looking for outliers, you fundamentally can't necessarily have a framework to look at it. But I will say this is that it really depends on the stage of the company. If I'm looking at a pre-seed and seed company, then I will place a lot of it on the founders. Because ultimately, it'll be the founders who are, A, going to take the technology forward. Because they are probably, especially in a specialized field like biotech, there's only like a few people who actually know how to use this piece of IP. So if they leave, I'm left with nothing. So I need to really place the bet is on the founder. Secondly, the first, you know, 10 hires of a company can make it or break it. Can they attract the right talent and do they have the nose for it? And are they sometimes... Are they humble enough to see where, or self-aware enough to see where they're not strong and where they should be complemented by somebody else? And and that might be, you know, taking thinking that sometimes some some of them will be CEO at the pre-seed and then will decide to take a more CSO role by Series Series A. And that's primarily because they actually they prefer driving the research rather than driving other metrics, which you'll need, for example, to also be somebody who's uh, who can pitch well. And it's especially at the pre-seed and seed level because yes, the technology is great, but it's also about the story. And I need to be able to believe that you will be able to, once we put in a certain amount of money, that in, in two years when you're going to pitch, I'm not the only one who saw something in you, but that you have the kind of gravitas almost to pull in investment for the next one. So there's that. Technology, fundamentally, yes. We are looking also... Um, and this then kind of fleshes out like the technology is, is it something that's going to fundamentally change the world as we know it is quite easy to say but essentially if it's something that's a 10% improvement or it's something where there's already quite a few therapies on the market for this and they work quite well there's no toxic side effect then question mark as to whether we should be actually pursuing this because even the regulators will be like mm, well is it worth going through all of this if it's just 10% better? I mean, I completely understand where you're coming from in terms of it. Yeah, you have to be flexible in terms of looking at the different companies that you are based on their stage of growth. And the point you made around talent and, you know, high profile roles within the scaling business around a CEO, a CSO, um, and what roles they play. Interesting. And I said that we'd sort of go back to, wanted to go back to a point that you mentioned earlier around 
social purpose really. So I think when I was um, looking at the company website for Octopus Ventures, there's a phrase there which resonated around backing the people on ideas that will change the world, which definitely resonates with what you were saying around when you're looking at specific businesses. Yes, it's the technology. Yes, it's the people. But what's the impact going to be in terms of society and improving people's yeah. health? And it feels like that's a bit of a common thread for you personally as well through you founding the yeah. Science Entrepreneur Club that you mentioned when you were um, setting out the introduction. So. Yeah, how important to you is that that social purpose? And I, I can I get the impression that it's not only key to you, but it's also part of a key fundamental to Octopus as well. Yeah, so I mean, I'll start with Octopus, right? We went through a sort of two-year process to get the B Corp certification in uh, in twenty twenty-one, and we've really implemented that at the heart of of how Octopus grew, but also Octopus Ventures operate. So we publish an annual report on. On to shareholders, even though we're private companies, we don't need to do that. Um, and you know, fundamentally, the B Corp is you know doing the right thing when no one is looking, uh, and that is a quite interesting thing. And you will see that there's this annual report that I just mentioned. The all Octopus employees t together we contributed twelve thousand five hundred hours of volunteering uh, last year which is also super impressive. We have a lot of inclusion and diversity metrics. We take the net zero agenda very seriously in terms of how we think. And so that permeates to the Octopus group and it's something that actually we, I think we all hold quite um, close to our heart in terms of you know even impact investing, but really living it, not just putting an ESG metric because we can. So there's that. In terms of the ventures and, and the bio team, so it's very easy in life sciences to go, oh, we're saving patients' lives, tick, um, but then we think about, you know, are there ways to mitigate the plastic wastes that comes from our industry, actually? There's a, a whole, you know, plastic island, I think, in the middle of the Pacific, and I think one-fifth of it is lab waste, right? Pipette tips and everything. It's, it's, really? it's pretty I bad. Really? I that. It's pretty bad. So there's that. There is also how, for example, we look at other metrics. Is like so Recently, um, the update came out with the fact that you don't need to use m mice and animal models all the time, provided there's a good model. So organoids, which is growing, for example, a mini version of your liver or whatever, can those be used in the preclinical studies rather than you know, essentially killing animals at the end of the day? So there's those things. And, and so obviously, so these are some of the metrics that we look at. We also, in terms of social things that we look at, in terms of the ventures is how do we get more female founders, which is not easy actually, uh, but primarily because there's, I don't know if it's true or not, but there is definitely a sort of element of risk taking that uh, societally you find men doing more. So you do, you do have a lot of men, but also there's an unconscious bias side because a lot of VCs, statistically speaking, are going to be men and they will invest in people that look like them. How do you become aware of your unconscious bias? A, try to see as many female founders as possible. Uh, at least put, make sure that you're on the map. So I did the female office um, hours with uh, organized by Playfair Capital. We try to take metrics. But also, I think for me, what's apparent is that the problem starts a lot earlier than just at entrepreneurship level. It's something that we need to remediate at the school level. So I'm quite interested in that. And I think, and my theory around life sciences, especially research, is that it's one of the areas where there's a lot of impact that we can do, but it's very easy to abstract away from the real 
people that we uh, actually influence, even yourself in the life science real estate, like the real people that we impact are the patients. It's giving, you know, another 50 years of healthy life to that little girl so she can live and experience life as it is. But we don't see that uh, because we don't actually work in hospitals as much as possible. So I have a lot of respect for medical staff. And I wonder if there isn't a way where, you know, you work 20 years at a bench doing it, coming out with a therapy, but it puts things in perspective when you see the people whose lives you can actually change. Um, and that's, I think that's key. And for me, that's an impact that I, I think about in terms of impact investing and why I do kind of what I do. Very powerful. I think you're completely right to bring up the point that, you know, as you said, from a real estate perspective, we are advising, you know, advising clients who are need to find space or are delivering space at a, at a high level. But you should always remember the the purpose of what you're doing, which is to improve people's health. And as we talked about earlier, the this sector is moving at such an incredible pace. There's new technologies being created, which hopefully will continue to see some pretty amazing breakthroughs that we've even seen in the past couple of years. So mm-hmm. certainly, you know, positive and hopeful in terms of what lies ahead there. Just picking up on, on the real estate bit, because we have to talk about real estate for part of the podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> when you're engaging with companies that you're investing in, what are some of the common challenges that you think they're finding when they're thinking about securing or, or finding space? Yeah. Um, securing or finding space. Uh, multiple points uh, to touch. And this is also coming back to my, my Stephen Bison's catalyst experience in some ways. Companies at different stages of, of their, I guess, like funding cycle and have different needs, right? And, and it's very interesting when you build an incubator, even when you build real estate and you think, ooh, the pre-seed company that we've just slotted in is going to then grow and stay here and, and become big. What ends up happening is you fill that with tons of those pre-seed companies. They get their funding, but then they realize that they can't expand or that they have to split their team over three floors. And the CEO doesn't really want that because of the team spirit. That, uh, and, and, that, and I don't know if there is some way to remediate that um, because they will go to incubators, these uh, pre-seed companies, because of the cost. Like That's more affordable. But we simply, at the end of the day, I think finding a building to renovate and to be able to build up to spec um, is quite interesting when you hit series A, series B in the sector, because then your talents, you can retain them. Because if you have to move to different incubators, because as we know, London and Golden Triangle, there isn't a lot of space right, right now. Um, if you have to relocate, you're going to lose employees because we don't think like Americans. For us, a uh, two hour drive or commute is long and we're like, no, I'm going to leave <laughs> this company and find something else to do with my life. Um, and, and that's just a reality where it's like Americans, I'm always surprised. They're like, oh yeah, the incubator is just two hours away from Boston. I'm just, I commute there every day. I'm like, oh, that wouldn't happen here. <laughs> it's quite far. Um, and in terms of like, you know, in terms of affordability, I think there are currently you're actually the rate limiting step almost is availability. And so yeah. sometimes some of these incubators that I see, but also spaces that I see having been built, the rental is quite high in line and then you have the business rates etc that you add on that but it, it's, it's quite expensive but they'll take it because that's all they have um i do think and i do advise a lot of pre-seed companies like maybe stay a little longer in the university rather than 
really trying to have to find some space or really spin out when you're ready and do a 15 million round and then take the capex and do that. A different, just, sorry, go. So no, sorry to interrupt. Just just on the point around affordability though. So, mm. um, and I mean, I assume this will be part of the business plan in terms of what's mapped out to you in terms of, well, this is going to be our potential cost to securing a real estate. But yeah, just from more of a sentiment basis, how cost conscious are biotech companies around space? Are they, do you think there's a bit of a scenario sort of that's unfolding at the moment where because there is a lack of availability, the affordability has had to go a bit further down in terms of in terms of the pecking order, in terms of importance. But actually, if there was a bit more available space in the market, then naturally I assume affordability and competitive and around price would become more more important, yeah. I mean, there's you know two ways this can go. Either the market goes that way and it becomes more competitive, or they all bend together and set a certain line where we don't go lower than that and too bad for the little companies. I think we, we both know how that can go. It's hard to predict. I think there is going to be a lot of space in the next five years that is going to be come on, coming online. I mean, we both know everything that's happening in King's Cross and elsewhere in the city. Every now, like four months, there's a new big building uh, kind of being announced, etc. It's it, So there's a lot of space. I think a lot of the potential developers should put money when they see like a sovereign wealth fund put money in an incubator. Well, probably two years ago, they were paying a premium they're probably going to lose money on that, is my guess. Um, because fundamentally speaking, there's also going to be, do we have enough biotech companies of a good caliber in that will, you know, want to take all of this in five years? Because at the end of the day, they're only paying you because VC invests in them. And if they don't get the next run from the VCs, they're not going to, to you know, so let's talk a bit about the VC picture because I think that's that's certainly been well, yeah, it's certainly been more documented than it ever has been over the past certainly three years in the real estate community in terms of the volumes of VC. And I think it should be hopefully no shock to anyone that's tuning into the podcast around how global levels of VC have changed, particularly since the height of 2021, where a lot of money was being raised in the sort of in the context of COVID. But the Bioindustry Association recently released some figures around Q2 stats and I think 382 million were was raised in the past past quarter. So up 29% from the previous quarter's 295 million. So money's still being raised in the UK market, probably not quite to the same levels as, well, certainly won't be to the same levels as 2021, but hopefully getting back to pre-COVID levels. Is, are you still feeling that there's a strong sentiment to the UK market from a VC perspective? Not just from the UK. I think so. A lot of the growth funds and the, um, yeah, a, a lot of growth funds, private equity, uh, also like companies that would fund some of the later stages, and a lot of the LPs from which VCs are raising from are still, have, are still hurting from being exposed to public markets. And that is still not looking super great. So there, like LPs, for example, are telling VCs to be careful. They're also it's harder to raise a new fund as an emerging fund manager. It is um, and the growth players who you know put money at Series B, Series C, Series D, uh, a lot of them also have positions in publicly listed companies. So on that front, 
it is quite tough for uh, companies of that stage to raise the next round. And that is worldwide. Yeah. Um, the early stage, I think pre-seed and seed companies, it will always be quite competitive and it still is from what I'm seeing at least. The good ones at least, the good deals are quite competitive. It, What it is, what has changed though maybe over the last year or two is, you know, two years ago you had a few companies that listed with only pre-biotech companies that listed with only pre-clinical assets, hadn't even started a phase one. This wouldn't be possible right now. For example, in the US, when you want to do an mRNA vaccine companies like, and you want to raise a series A, they'll be asking for non-human primate data. That's pretty advanced. Like this is something that some companies used to do maybe in series B uh, back in the days. So the the standards have been raised. That's um, interesting, yeah. And, and that only made sense, I think, because you have a lot of VCs, in my opinion, especially now that you have tech VCs and generalist VCs investing in biotech, who will invest at the stage where the risk is low for them because it's a multiple shots and goal approach. So you get a lot of like pre-seed and seed biotechs, tech bio companies funded. Um, but the people who have the money uh, at the growth stage will be looking at and will be asking, so what about your assets? Like how far is that being pushed along? Has it, is it in, um, you know, is it close to IND? And you know, that's that's I think that's normal. It's potentially a rethinking and maybe the hype between just like putting money between just pure platform and not thinking necessarily of growing your own internal assets far enough. Like that has changed. They will be asking for assets. You don't have to be a single asset company, uh, single asset therapeutic. You just need to. You can develop the platform. Just do not do not forget to actually go through the motion in terms of pushing something close to IND or, or phase one. I think what's also interesting is that, and, and this touches also on the real estate, but the biggest round this year, I think, was Ascend, which is a CDMO for cell and gene therapy companies. And as you know, probably uh, from the cell and gene sector, a lot of companies were building their own manufacturing facilities back in the days. Some of that went wrong. Some of them had to close these things because of some processes and had to be leaner. And, you know, they had to do that because we didn't have CDMOs who knew how to do that. Uh, they had to do that because there wasn't enough talent. But now we're coming to the stage where you can outsource this. If you're looking at small molecules or antibody development, you can you can almost run a virtual company. One of the biggest exits at Stevenish when I was there actually was Candy Therapeutics. And that was purely run with uh, CROs, CD, uh, yeah, mostly CROs to be yes. honest, in terms of the experiments they did. And that was one of the biggest exits. I think it got acquired for about 1 billion bio bucks. So I think 300 or so million up front. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a small molecule. And they only had offices, never had labs. So. Definitely, we'll hopefully get to that in the cell and gene sector at some point. I think it'll be more, it'll be more capital efficient. It's that. certainly a sector to watch, isn't it? We've been monitoring it for some time. I think, as you're alluding to, it's only going to continue to grow. Perhaps to close us out and a bit of a sort of, what do you think the lies in store for the future ahead in terms of the UK biotech market? Obviously, some of, we talked a bit about VC, some of the short-term challenges from a real estate perspective in terms of available stock. But I assume, as a VC investor in this space, you remain bullish around the UK strength in the field and particularly on the global stage because it's in, becoming increasingly competitive. Mm-hmm. Well, 
somebody with my background, and I still don't have the passport, I really should get that, but I could work from anywhere in the world, and I choose to work in in, uh, in London and in the UK as a whole for a reason, primarily because, yes, in I think the UK is world-leading in a lot of the, the biotechs. We are, for example, a genomic nation, I would say. We've got stuff that nobody else has in terms of the... Uh, uh, the my future health all, the, all these other things that we're pushing through is is great on the genomic front the cell and gene therapy catapults like this we've be, built something really strong here we had companies from, coming from the u.s to set up shop to work with the, the catapults right yeah. so super strong on that historically the uk is and always will be very strong in biotech i am also interested in, and maybe here's going to be said so uh, incredibly bullish this is why i'm here right Here's, here's some of the bare stuff that I'm seeing in terms of the cases is um, synthetic biology, right? And that's maybe something to touch on worldwide, but we've got incredible scientists and incredible research being done in a lot of university, but I don't see enough translation happening. I don't see, and that could be because a lot of the outputs of synthetic biology and engineering biology are sometimes not necessarily therapeutics and they might have lower kind of margins than you'd have. Mm. Therefore, you need to have manufacturing in place uh, so that these companies can, you know, would we have a sort of engineering biology catapult? That could be interesting because a lot of these things, they'll move abroad, they'll go to the US because that's where they can access the manufacturing capacity. I think that's maybe my, my takeaway from the engineering biology because that's where I did my PhD in, right? So I'm very... PhD and master's and undergrad. So I'm still very passionate about the area. There's still a lot of stuff happening. I just don't see enough real world translation. I think in the U US we have Ginkgo. And again, that's a big question mark as to, I mean, they've done tremendous job to do a lot of different things, but are they really successful in the sense of like, what are they really translating? Now they're pivoting towards healthcare and a lot of synthetic biology and engineering biology companies always pivot towards healthcare. And that's the only thing, why is that happening? Because if you're going to be spending that much on R&D, then you might as well have high margins when you sell the end product and healthcare pays. But I'd like to see some less healthcare applications work. In terms of the, maybe another thing about TechBio, which I find fascinating is nowadays, um, you know, as a typical VC, I have to mention generative AI. But, you know, we're seeing, for example, things from David Baker's lab in the US, okay, but we have a lot of people working in the UK on this sort of stuff. He's, for example, his lab has come up with a brand new structure of a luciferase. So that's an enzyme that normally produces light. Now, the way you would do that as a normal molecular biologist is if you want to create a new one, you change a couple of amino acids. He used AI to build this from scratch. It looks nothing alike like the original protein, but it does exactly the same thing, which means in the future, we'll maybe have to even rethink on how we think about IP because IP for now in terms of protein or any of these things is currently done by sequence similarity or, or, or these yeah. things where it's just, yeah. here's an amino acid. And if you change this and if it's similar at these 70% of it is similar, then it falls into the same patent. Here they're going like, we don't do this, but what about, could, can you IP a structure just from the structural level? And I know this because I'm a guy who worked on viruses, etc. They mutate so fast that they often don't, they will actually not be similar at the sequence similarity level. But the structure and what they kind of do, 
yeah. is very similar. So we might have to even rethink that kind of stuff. That's incredibly cool. We'll be able to come up with new things that a human can't, but with AI and all these other things, we might be able to. Goes back to that pace of change bit. So I mean, generative AI is, yeah, I mean, it's everywhere. You know, people are using it in their day-to-day lives. We as Jellel recently launched our own GPT function internally, yes. actually, which is, yeah, it's actually incredible to use, really helpful. Oh yeah. Oh, I, I, I use it on, it's actually very useful for doing quick due diligence also on certain mm. things. You do need to ask for the sources, obviously, because yeah, some of these things can, can make it up. But when you do and you keep that into account, you're able to fast track a lot of the research, i.e. you want to look at somebody on the pitch deck who tells me, oh, we have the technology to detect some of these certain type of viruses that have an envelope or not. And you look at, let's say, the top 20 viruses, uh, viral infections in the UK. And if you're able to see that a certain percentage of them are actually don't have this, then you can't detect that. Therefore your question is like, hmm. Uh, And that saves me about three hours of work of going through that. Uh, This gives me the answer in about 15 minutes and and then 15 minutes. And then I just double check that the sources are right. And that it's coming from the CDC and all that kind of stuff. Pretty incredible stuff. Pretty incredible, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, no worries. Absolute pleasure. No, I really enjoyed the conversation. I'm sure we'll speak soon. Likewise. Thanks for listening. Cheers, Chris. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more on the life science innovation sector, search JLL Clustering Insights Podcast online or subscribe via Spotify or Apple Podcasts.